0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Monograph. I'm your host, George A. Velez. Very happy to have you. I hope you're doing all right. I really mean that. For those of you joining us for the first time, a monograph is a scholarly essay on a particular aspect of art, or it can be a collection of essays in a book or a series of volumes. So think of this podcast as a collection of sorts examining all things film related. There's a new Batman film coming out, and over the next few weeks, I'll be doing a series of monographs on his place in cinema history. Batman has had a great influence on why I do what I do, so hop in the bat whip, and let's get into it. Is everybody paying attention? I will help you solve the greatest riddle of all, the mother of all riddles. Who is Batman? Batman is one of the best characters in fiction, not just comic books, fiction. A tragic figure with identity issues, post-traumatic stress, perhaps sociopathy. Batman's popularity has outlasted most of the heroes that debuted in his day because you can take him, drop him on an alien planet, and he'd still be Batman. At first, he was a pulp hero, a crazy masked guy with a gun. This was wisely retconned, making Batman more layered, the reason he's one of the most popular comic characters ever. But what makes Batman, Batman? The costume, Bruce Wayne's handsome billionaire playboy persona, martial arts expertise, a man in peak physical condition who's also a genius. He fights extravagant psychotic villains. He has complicated relationships with his butler father figure Alfred and his surrogate bat family. He has a strict moral code refusing to murder even the most violent criminals. And finally, there's his compassion. The core of Batman. I've obsessed over him my whole life. I'm not exaggerating. It's bad. I wish I was Batman. Anyway, let's examine Batman's role in cinematic history. So far, there have been four filmmakers who have interpreted the character. Let's examine who most understood the source material, starting at what the general consensus considers to be the most successful. Warner Brothers hired Christopher Nolan eight years after audiences gave Batman and Robin the cold shoulder. Get it. Fresh off the success of his latest film, The Underrated Insomnia, starring Al Pacino and Robin Williams, Nolan's approach was the antithesis to Schumacher's, focusing on Batman's origins his motivations, and grounding the story in reality, where Batman battles corruption and the mafia. Bruce is lost and angry after his parents' death. Expelled from Princeton, planning to kill his parents' murderer, Joe Chill, who's testifying against crime boss Carmine Falcone, played by Tom Wilkinson. After Falcone has Chill murdered and his childhood friend Rachel Dawes, played in this film by Katie Holmes, voices her rage and disappointment at his plan. He remembers his parents being shot to death and tosses the gun into the river, refusing to use the same weapon that murdered his parents. A powerful scene visually executed with editing and Christian Bale's magnificent performance rather than expository dialogue. And as we all know, a rarity for Christopher Nolan. Falcone tells Bruce... He fears criminals because he does not understand them, motivating Bruce to flee and train around the world, only to return to Gotham seven years later, now an expert in the criminal mindset and martial arts, using fear to fight crime. His phobia of bats becomes the most important tool in his crusade. The villain Scarecrow physically represents Bruce overcoming his fear and using it as a motivation rather than something that haunts him. In terms of understanding Batman, this is Christopher Nolan's most successful film. Having said that, there is something Nolan gets wrong. Batman kills, albeit indirectly. He doesn't save Ra's al Ghul. In this film incorrectly pronounced Ra's al Ghul. He doesn't save Ra's al Ghul, leaving him to die. Something Batman would never do. Christian Bale shows the breadth of his talent and physical commitment, gaining over 100 pounds. Seriously, my man's. Beefy, fully embodying Bruce as the angry young man, as the man on the mission, as his public facade, the shallow billionaire playboy, and of course Batman. The embodiment of fear and obsession, a force of nature. Now this is the moment we've all been kind of waiting for, right? The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight is a film that defined the modern blockbuster. The film showed that superhero films can be art, and even recently, it was inducted into the Library of Congress. A film with a villain that took pop culture by storm, not seen since Hannibal Lecter. A film responsible for a slew of imitations, and the tired trope of the villain orchestrating his capture by the protagonist in order to execute his real plan. We saw this in The Avengers, we saw this in Skyfall, we saw this in that that Sherlock show with, with Cumberbatch. And it was a movie embraced by film bros the way Fight Club was a decade earlier. Batman battles the Joker, his arch nemesis, played by Heath Ledger. A compelling fictional rivalry comparable to God and the devil, Neo and Smith, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Their mutual obsession forms their bond, similar to Vincent Hanna and Neil Macaulay from Heat, played by Pacino and De Niro, respectively. You can make the argument this is a loose remake of Heat. Both films start with a bank robbery. You have a very obsessive detective character. And right smack dab in the middle of the movie, these characters, who in many ways are are similar or polar opposites, these characters have a conversation, the way Al Pacino and Robert De Niro do in, in the film Heat. The Joker says, You and I are destined to do this forever. A line referring to their relationship in the film and their cultural history. Batman's existence attracts the Joker, like a monster awakened from a slumber, a theme borrowed from the source material. This isn't the Joker who kills people with laughing gas or turns Gotham River into jelly. He's a terrorist, a villain interpreted for post-9-11 era, with causality and Batman's war on crime being a metaphor for the escalating war on terror, something critics felt elevated the film. The Dark Knight Rises, the final chapter of the trilogy, was released a few years later. I've spoken about trilogies and their critical reception before, so I won't go into that here. But if you are compelled to hear about it, you can go to the first episode where I talk about the Scream series. It's really good. I, I, I like listening to it. While the film had positive reviews, people are split between its ranking and the trilogy. Like other trilogies, Bruce confronts his past. He has been a recluse in the eight years since the Joker murdered Rachel Dawes. It's also been eight years since the last appearance of Batman. Somehow people don't put two and two together, but, but we're going to go with it. We'll roll with it. He dons the cape once again when Bane, the always brilliant Tom Hardy, the new leader of the League of Shadows, which is the criminal organization ran by Ra's al Ghul, played by Liam Neeson in, the, in Batman Begins, Bane aims to finish their mission and destroy Gotham, turning the population against Gotham's rich, causing an uprising. Bane and Batman's face-off results in him breaking Batman's back, an infamous moment in the comic books. In the comics, Bane is known as the only man to break the bat. Tom Hardy's physicality is frightening. It's the first time Batman is bested in hand-to-hand combat, making Bane an equally physical and psychological threat. It's really fucked up. It's wild. Seriously, Batman gets his shit rocked. While the film could have benefited from a few more drafts, it's still riveting, especially now that Bane's fascism is a topic of discussion in today's climate. The ambiguous ending is more confusing than ambiguous, but Nolan's films are the most accomplished blockbusters of the modern era, but do they understand Batman? Well, they started to, but became less complex as the series progressed, and both sequels, Bruce falls in love and wants to stop the bad guy. That's it. They are Nolan films, not Batman films, and that distinction is very important. In the 80s, Frank Miller's comics Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore's The Killing Joke and Watchmen legitimized the comic book medium. After Burton's sophomore effort Beetlejuice was a success, he was hired to direct Batman. He wasn't a fan of comics, but he was particularly taken with the visuals of the aforementioned comics, using them as guides for the production, also taking cues from Art Deco, German Expressionism, and Film Noir. Burton's fusion of 1940s fashion with modern technology is one of the biggest impacts on the Batman franchise across all media. Every leading man from Mel Gibson to Bill Murray what the fuck would that movie be was considered for Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Burton cast Michael Keaton, the star of Beetlejuice. Fanboys went fucking nuts, something that predicted today's toxic fandom. Batman had gone through a renaissance in the comics and the fans feared Batman was reverting to his campy Adam West days. The skepticism was not unfounded in the source material Bruce Wayne is a traditionally handsome, physically fit, beefy boy. Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne does not have old school leading man looks. This is superficial criticism because after all, beauty is subjective. However... He does have the physique and fashion sense of an English professor. It's hard to believe Michael Keaton's Batman can lift men with one hand and box people to sleep when he looks like the extent of his workout regimen is a light jog. I'm not scared of Michael Keaton's Batman. Like, we can can throw hands. It's fine. Keaton's Bruce doesn't know how to have normal conversations with anyone, especially women. When he and Vicky Vale dine at his mansion, they sit 30 feet away from each other, not saying anything. He's the kooky guy in the mansion who everyone should suspect is Batman. There's really no other candidates. It's like the rich guy who's weird and uh, doesn't really have great social skills. Michael Keaton's performance was praised. He's even better in the sequel, showing Bruce's intelligence as a businessman and his romance with Selena Kyle, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, is far more credible than his romance with Vicki Vale, who's played by Kim Basinger. But these films aren't about Batman. They're about the villains. Jack Nicholson got top billing for playing the Joker. It's easy to see why. He probably has more screen time than Michael Keaton. It's worse than the sequel, Batman Returns. The film spends more time with Penguin, played by Danny DeVito, and Catwoman, who I mentioned was played by... Um, who is also Selena Kyle, who's played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Michael Keaton doesn't even show up until the 30-minute mark. Burton relates more to the villains, the outcasts, which is understandable because it is a recurring theme in his filmography. Even though it was released in 1989, the movie still influences the film industry today. The film sold $750 million worth of merchandise and made $400 million at the box office. That's crazy. This was 1989. Prince, the baddest motherfucker to ever live, was originally contracted to do a song, but he released a whole fucking album. And that's something that predates Kendrick Lamar's Black Panther album, which is also an incredible album. But Prince's album is brilliant. It fucking slaps. And Prince fans, please don't hate it because it's not Purple Rain 2. It's got Party Man. Party Man. The Joker even dances to that shit. Anyway, Keaton's performance influenced countless iterations. Every actor uses two voices for Bruce Wayne and Batman. The films are a brilliant exercise in style, but do they understand Batman? Well, only visually. Bruce Wayne doesn't do anything. In fact, the writers shoehorn the Joker as his parents' murderer halfway into the first one to give him some sort of motivation. In both films, Bruce Wayne has a love interest. He doesn't know how to tell her he's Batman. She finds out, and then he goes and stops the bad guy. Here's where we get to the controversial stuff. Zack Snyder. After Zack Snyder directed his moody Superman film, Man of Steel, Batman was brought into the sequel in the awkwardly titled Batman v. Superman Dawn of Justice, starting the DCEU. Everyone was excited because it was going to be the first movie, the first live action movie to feature Superman and Batman. And judging by the title, they were going to scrap. It was going to be lit. It wasn't. Ben Affleck starred as Batman. Affleck did that terrible Daredevil movie in 2003. He resembles the Bruce Wayne in the comics, down in the pronounced superhero chin. We see Bruce deciding Superman is a fucking menace after witnessing Superman's destructive fight in the Man of Steel climax. He's got a point. The film uses 9-11 imagery in the opening scene to use Batman's crusade as a metaphor for the war on terror. It's boring to have the same conversation. Batman is the film's antagonist. Robin was murdered by the Joker before the film's events. It's a plotline borrowed from the celebrated Dark Knight Returns. He's so blinded by his crusade, he's become a fucking psychopath, murdering and branding criminals with the Bat logo so they can get shivved in prison. I, I don't understand. It, it doesn't make sense to me either. In the climax, he and Superman fight for some reason. It's another thing I don't understand. It resembles the Superman and Batman showdown in The Dark Knight Returns, which ends because they both have moms named Martha. So they team up with Wonder Woman to fight a big CG monster. Superman dies and Batman's like, damn, I was wrong. No, you weren't Batman. Superman was a menace. The film received negative reviews, causing Warner Brothers to pivot and try to make the next Justice League film lighter. I'm skipping nerdy fuckboy Joss Whedon's soulless ghoul of a movie. You can basically see Ben Affleck checking his watch, wanting desperately to run away. Fortunately, Zack Snyder got to finish his cut of Justice League after fans petitioned to see it. It launched on HBO Max. His cut is his magnum opus, a mythical epic exploring Batman's guilt over Superman's death that motivates him to form the Super Friends. In Snyder's cut, Affleck's portrayal of Batman's redemption gives the film emotional weight. Affleck turned down the chance to write, direct, and star in his own Batman film due to his personal issues and the baggage of playing the character. And he quit the series. The upcoming Flash movie is his last movie. So, do these films understand Batman? I think we know the answer to that question. Which is no. Affleck is great. Batman's costume and his gadgets are faithful to the source material. But that's that's where it ends, because Batman doesn't kill. He's not a murderer. And The Dark Knight returns when the Joker murders Robin. He retires. He doesn't become a murderer. Snyder and company say these movies are for the true, quote unquote, comic book fans. But they mean the fans that think Batman should kill because it's more realistic. And the fans that say that do not understand Batman. The Batman's not the Punisher. They're superhero films. Which means they're an exploration of the complexities of heroism. This is not a different interpretation of Batman. This is a different character entirely. So... I want to be honest with you. I have to admit something. I wasn't exactly um, honest, you know? Well, not not that I was dishonest. I, I wasn't transparent in the beginning because I wanted to end at Joel Schumacher, right? Not because I think he's the worst Batman director, like I said before, because I was going in order by the general consensus, right? Which is Christopher Nolan, Tim Burton, Zack Snyder. General consensus. Joel Schumacher is considered by probably most people to be the director who made the worst batman movies but joel schumacher understood batman more than any of the directors on this list please put the gun down i have a family i'm not trying to be spicy for the sake of being spicy this is a monograph after all and i will be providing references batman returns was considered too dark for children it was very violent it was A lot of sexual stuff with, like, Catwoman and, and, I don't know, Penguin? I don't know. It's weird. In fact, McDonald's pulled their Happy Meal promotion for this reason. When the film made $150 million less than the first one, Tim Burton was replaced. Warner hired Joel Schumacher, director of the masterpiece, The Lost Boys. At first, Schumacher wanted to direct an adaptation of Batman Year One, something that excited Michael Keaton. But Warner Brothers didn't want a prequel. They wanted a sequel. So Keaton turned down $15 million after reading the script. (laughs) Schumacher cast Val Kilmer as Batman, Chris O'Donnell as Robin, and his first appearance in the film series. Schumacher moved away from Burton's grim, gothic, noir aesthetic and went for a lighter approach, covering Gotham in colorful neon. The film is a tribute to the campy Adam West show, Jim Carrey's over-the-top performance, as the Riddler has a lot of shades of Frank Gorshin's take on the character in the show. Tommy Lee Jones' Two-Face and Carrey's Riddler are not the intriguing characters of Nolan's trilogy. They are cartoonish bad guys jumping and cackling in every scene. Schumacher's response to all this was, Batman is a comic book. We made a living comic book. But what fans couldn't deal with, what they could not forgive, was Schumacher's decision to put nipples on the suit. He felt this made Batman into a joke. Superhero comics have been constantly compared to Greek mythology. Schumacher made this decision because he wanted the Batsuit to resemble the perfection of Greek statues. This decision makes the Greek mythology comparisons text instead of subtext. This is still considered a low point for Batman across all mediums, comics, animation, all of it. This is the first film in the series to explore Batman's psychology. Schumacher gets to include some aspects of Batman Year One by flashing back to scenes from Bruce's childhood. It is the first film that explores Bruce's guilt over the death of his parents. He's suffering from repressed memories, questioning his decision to stay Batman, feeling guilty after he wasn't able to stop Two-Face from murdering the Flying Graysons. The Riddlers' Edward Nigma and Dick Grayson force Bruce to confront his identity crisis. Edward Nigma obsesses over Bruce Wayne, even dressing like him when he earns enough wealth. He's a distorted mirror of Bruce. He's an evil rich man who dresses in a costume at night. It symbolizes Bruce's battle with duality. Bruce takes Dick Grayson into his mansion after his family is murdered. Dick is blinded by rage, asking Bruce to help him kill Two-Face. When Dick puts himself in harm's way to save Batman, Bruce resigns as Batman. This is the only film to deal with Batman psychology, his struggle with repressed memories and PTSD, and the struggle of having to be a father figure to Dick Grayson. Val Kilmer gives an understated performance, a welcome balance to the sugary cereal of the rest of the movie, but it's also one that shows hints of pain Bruce is trying to repress. It's not until Bruce confronts these demons he decides that he will be Batman forever Batman forever made a shit ton of money and sold a shit ton of toys I had the Batmobile and it gave us seals kiss from a rose it's a fucking banger so Batman and Robin next film in the series went into production immediately Warner Brothers didn't even give a shit if the movie was good they just meddled with Schumacher so they can use the film to sell toys George Clooney replaced Val Kilmer it's a missed opportunity because holy shit that's perfect casting While Schumacher paid tribute to the Adam West show in Batman Forever, this is the Adam West show. It's got a Bat phone. Batman has a credit card that's good for forever. Arnold Schwarzenegger yells ice puns as Mr. Freeze and Batman and Robin play hockey and they fight goons. It's a wild ass movie. This is considered one of the worst movies of all time. For Batman fans, it's because Schumacher, an openly gay man, made Batman gay. The close-up of the nipples on the Batsuit and Batman's butt angered many fans. <laughs> the interpretation isn't wrong, but that's what makes the movie ten times better, because if you take the script at face value, it's fucking trash. But if you watch the film with the subtext that Poison Ivy is threatening the love of two men, you have a brilliant pop art film. You have Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy. She's part Gloria Swanson, part Divine, part Mae West. She says lines like, I'll bring everything you see here, plus everything you don't. It's something that comes right out of Mae West. Gay subtext has always been in Batman since the 50s all the way to the Adam West show. Burt Ward, who played Robin in the Adam West show, said you can interpret them as lovers. Grant Morrison, one of the most famous Batman comic book writers, said, Obviously, he's intended to be heterosexual, but the whole concept is utterly gay. George Clooney says his take on Batman, is a gay man. So none of this is new. What Schumacher does is he takes this aspect of Batman and he brings it up front and he celebrates it. His two films were inspired by The Adam West Show, inspired by Frank Miller, and inspired by Dick Spring, who drew the old Batman comic books in the 40s. A man who references all these varied takes on Batman knows what the fuck he's talking about. There shouldn't be a negative criticism of the films, and Schumacher felt compelled to apologize, which is unfortunate because, as a director, he gave us every shade of Batman. There's a rumor of a director's cut of Batman Forever floating around somewhere. Supposedly, it's, it's a little darker. Schumacher's original version deserves to be seen after all this criticism. He died, and so he won't be around to see that release if it ever happens, but I hope it does. Camp is part of Batman's history. It's just as valid as Nolan or Burton's brooding Dark Knight character. There is an episode of the animated show Batman Brave and the Bold where Batmite breaks the fourth wall and says, Batman's rich history allows him to be interpreted in a multitude of ways. To be sure, this is a lighter incarnation, but it's certainly no less valid and true to the character's roots than the tortured Avenger crying out for mommy and daddy. Shout out to Joel Schumacher the director who most understood Batman. That's it for this episode of the Cinemonograph, everyone. Thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't lose any credibility with this hot take. Like Batman, I'm up all night fighting for justice. Movie justice. Please follow us on your preferred streaming platform to get updates when we drop new episodes. Tell your friends who love movies. Tell your friends who love Batman. Stay tuned. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you once again for coming, and I'll see you next time. This has been The Cinemograph.